All right, well, good morning again. Uh, one quick thing I'll add to the movie night announcement. Uh, if you are a parent of young children and you uh, went trick-or-treating that week before, this is a great place to come and bring all of that extra candy and dump it into the big bowl and get rid of it out of your house, and then uh, we give it to kids here. But a, a nice way to get that stuff out of your house if you want to. So um, we will always take free donations of candy here. Uh, so the uh, 11 o'clock service, you guys have a big task today, and here is your big task. You've got to bring a lot of energy to this message this morning. Uh, I tell what I think are some of my finest jokes this morning, and uh, sometimes the 11 o'clock service is a little flat, so I'm really challenging you right now. Um, laugh even if you don't think they're funny, all right? Thank you. That's great. That's really great. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, though, uh, after saying that, I do have to uh, start with uh, what I believe is kind of a sad story, uh, but I, I believe it sets up the morning pretty well. Uh, this happened just a few weeks ago. Um, a sloth named Herman was walking in the forest, and a gang of snails approached him and beat him up for seven hours. He was left at the bottom of a tree and suffered several cuts and bruises. Several hours later, he was able to kind of gather himself, get enough strength, and walk to the local police station. Herman walked into the sergeant's office, and the sergeant looked at him and said, What happened to you? Herman, with a downcast face, looked at the sergeant and said, A gang of snails beat me up. And the sergeant said, Well, can you describe what these snails looked like. And Herman slowly shook his head and said, I don't know, it just all happened so fast. <laughs> so as Russ said, <clears throat> like I said, some of my finest work this morning. Uh, as Russ said, today we are looking uh, at this spiritual sin, seven deadly sin of sloth this morning. So in reality, though, when you do a Google search under the word sloth, do you guys happen to know what comes up first? This picture right here. That is a sloth. <clears throat> How cute is that animal, huh? That is a sloth right there. And uh, I did a little bit of digging around uh, about sloth. And did you know that on October 20th was International Sloth Day? That's a true stat. There's an International Sloth Day. So if you uh, search sloth, this is the kind of stuff that comes up, right? This animal that we know as a sloth, a very cute, cuddly animal. But today's message is obviously not about this animal. But I would say that it's related in this way. That the animal known for its slow movement and inactivities, I believe, has somewhat created confusion about the meaning of sloth as a sin. So when we talk about it, I think sometimes we're confused because of this animal. See, sloth has traditionally been associated with a personality trait of laziness in human beings. The Bible refers to them as sluggards. These are the people, the, the adults that are still living in their parents' basements. The high school kid that sleeps in until 2 p.m. It's the, the young child that chooses to watch TV on a beautiful Saturday rather than go outside and play. It's the person who wears pajamas to the grocery store at noon. Ten years ago, I would have said it's the person that wears sweats or workout gear to church, but I'm happy to say that that is now totally acceptable as long as they're Lululemon sweats. <laughs> but in many ways, <clears throat> we have leaned on the scriptures 
specifically Proverbs, to support this belief that sloth is purely about laziness. Here are a couple of examples. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Proverbs 24 through 30 through 34 says this, I passed by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. There are a series of other proverbs that speak to the pitfalls or the characteristics of sloth. There's a list of them here behind me. Proverbs 10, 4, 12, 24, 30, 13, 4, 21, 5, 22, 9, 26, 13 through 16. These are all proverbs that we turn to that I believe support this belief that sloth is purely about laziness. And thus we have created a, a Christian or a cultural understanding that sloth is laziness, that it's inactivity, that it's idleness, indolescence, it's, uh, or, or my personal favorite, lackadaisicalness. But, and here is the big but for this morning, I don't think that's actually true. Certainly idleness, certainly laziness can be a symptom of sloth, but I don't think that they are the actual issue. I contend that the root of sloth is indifference. Indifference is defined as a lack of interest or concern. So with regard to defining the spiritual vice of sloth, I would say it's this. It's indifference to the continual and active process of living into the new identity that Christ has given us. It's indifference to the continual and active process of living into the new identity that Christ has given us. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 says this, For now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we were once regarded, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. You see, with relationship with Jesus comes a new identity. Before relationship, you were your old self. After relationship, you are a new creation. The scripture is pretty clear about this reality. The old self dies and the new self is born and begins to grow. This is where I think the analogy of marriage might be helpful. You see, over the course of a ceremony, people take on, they assume, they, uh, they, they live into an entire, entirely new reality of life, a new facet of life. They become a husband, they become a wife after the course of a ceremony. Before they were not those things, and after a 30-minute ceremony, they are now a husband. They are now a wife. They have a completely new identity. 
The same is true when we choose to be in relationship with Jesus. In making this choice, we become a new creation. We are given a new identity. In trusting Christ with our lives, we become united with him. His very essence and being begins to dwell within us. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a very deep and profound spiritual change that happens. What we once were, we are no longer. The reality of our lives changes. Our very beings become different when we step into relationship with the eternal God. The things of our past are forgiven and we are now a part of the family. We receive a new identity. However, the journey of faith doesn't stop with just our decision or just our choice to trust Jesus because there is an ongoing process of becoming this new creation. It's the lifelong process of sanctification. If you go back to the marriage analogy, it's not just enough for me to say, I do. I then have to live every day as a husband. I can't just say I do and then go back to everything I did before. There's a change that happens, but I have to live in to that change. I am now a husband and I have to act like a husband every single day. Sanctification quite literally means to be set apart. It's the process of being made holy. It's the daily, ongoing, active process by which we are continually living into the new identity that we have been given by Jesus. DeYoung says this about this twofold process. He says, in one sense we are Christians, and in another sense we are still becoming Christians. You become a Christian when you say, I choose you, Jesus, but every day you are becoming a Christian again. Sloth, as the spiritual vice, begins to destroy the process of sanctification. For those of you uh, who know me, you know that I am not uh, a pet person. I have not really ever been a pet person in my adult life. I don't have any desire to own a dog, and in fact, I don't even find dogs that cute. I know that's hard for some of you to understand, but I see them much more as an inconvenience in my life than I do anything else. I've had many arguments with friends who are avid pet owners, dog owners, who just don't understand me, and I just say, please accept me for who I am and how I am. Uh, So as much as I am not a pet person, two years ago, my family and I got our first pet, Kyle. Show a picture of Kyle right here, please. The one on the right, that is not Kyle. That is my son, Kempton. He is looking in on Kyle. Kyle is a praying mantis. And this was our first pet. Uh, I had my three boys, and we were coming into church, uh, or into the building here uh, one day, uh, to do some work. And uh, Kyle was on one of those little pillars out there. Just This was like towards the end of August, and he was just there, and we were totally fascinated by him, so we ran in and grabbed a cup and got him in there and put some saran wrap over him and, and took him home. And, and this is now Kempton, my youngest. 
uh, enjoying the majesty that is Kyle right there as our first pet. What I found out in owning Kyle is that it was a twofold process. The second that I accepted him into our family, I became a pet owner. My identity changed. I was now the owner of Kyle. We were a pet family. One minute I was not a pet owner, the next minute I was. There was a change that happened. But you see, it wasn't just enough to own Kyle. Kyle had to be taken care of, and this is the second process. Kyle had to have this little uh, terrarium, which was just actually an old cookie jar that we put some sticks in, and uh, we put like a little uh, cap full of water for drinking and, and bathing and so forth for Kyle. <laughs> Uh, and we found out quickly that Kyle needed to eat, and so uh, towards the evenings, I would go out and I would get <clears throat> catch moths by our light and put moths in there, and we started by putting dead moths in, and he, Kyle doesn't like dead moths. He had to have live food, so they had to be live moths, and, and we would put them in there, and he would eat them, and, uh, and after about a week or two, the novelty of this completely wore off. Grace, my wife, no longer wanted Kyle to be the centerpiece of our dinner table, the boys, as much as they said they would take care of Kyle, they had no interest after about two days, and so it was just me supporting Kyle's life. And his jar quickly kind of moved up to be on top of our refrigerator. And soon enough, it kind of became towards the back end of the refrigerator. And as the nights got colder, it became harder and harder to find moths to feed Kyle. And Kyle just kind of got out of the way a little bit. And Kyle, unfortunately, perished a slow death alone on top of our fridge. <laughs> and it wasn't because I hated Kyle. It wasn't even because I loved Kyle. It was mostly because I was indifferent. Indifference is what killed Kyle. Sloth is what killed Kyle. It was most likely starvation that killed Kyle, but still... <laughs> I think the point is made that <clears throat> I became a pet owner, but I actually didn't live in to that new identity. I did for a week, but then I just kind of became indifferent. Sloth is the slow and methodical distraction from the process of becoming who we are called to be. Beekner says this in uh, addressing the fact that sloth can be found in all types of people. He says, sloth is not to be confused with laziness. A slothful man may be a very busy man. He is a man who goes through the motions, who flies on automatic pilot. Like a man with a bad head cold, he has mostly lost his sense of taste and smell. People come and go, but through glazed eyes, he hardly notices them. He is letting things run their course. He is getting through his life. The slothful person is not just lazy. It's a person that's indifferent to the change in identity that comes through Christ. It's the person shirking their sp spiritual responsibility of living into this new reality of being recreated in Jesus. Sloth is the rejection of the ongoing relationship of fulfillment that we find in Christ and replacing it with any other thing in the world. Cook says this, Nothing is so clearly modern, so clearly Western, as is sloth. 
Despite our fast-moving, success-worshipping, ulcer-ridden society, we invest our energies and talents most often in what is trivial. Despite our frantic pace, our eyes are seldom focused on what is actually good. You see, it doesn't matter if you embody the typical picture of the 33-year-old, sweatpants-wearing, video game-playing, living in his parents' basement, not finding a job because he can't find one that he resonates with, or if you're the driven, success-chasing, overscheduled workaholic CEO who always has an excuse why she can't serve back with the kids at church because both lives are distracted from the reality that Christ offers. Both daily choose the path of least resistance. Neither are actively pursuing the new creation in which they are becoming. And because of their indifference, their faith will slowly be choked out. And the relationship they once desired will no longer exist. And expanding upon Eli Wiesel's famous quote, Peter Kreef says this, The opposite of love is not hate, it is indifference. For we can love and hate the same person at the same time, but we cannot love and be indifferent to the same person at the same time. Hate does not necessarily drive out love, but indifference does. Love is food. Plants and animals, children and adults all feed and grow on love. Hate is like poison, but indifference is like starvation. Even poisonous food can nourish in small doses, but nothing never nourishes. That is why children from oppressive, tyrannical, and combative families sometimes grow into strong individuals. They have to fight for their identity, and they often win. But children from I-don't-care families seldom learn to care themselves. They may have been cared for, but not cared about, so they care deeply about nothing. They neither love nor hate, for even hate is a form of caring. Hate is a disease, but indifference is a death. Fight is more right than flight. A scowl is closer to a smile than a snore. It is at least a face. Indifference forsakes the realities that Christ offers and fuels a life of empty and complacent existence. Jesus, in one of his uh, most famous parables, Parable of the Talents, this is in Matthew 25, I think speaks to this idea of indifference. I'll uh, give you a, a quick overview of the story. A wealthy landowner entrusts three of his servants to his property. To the first, he gives five talents. A talent is a, is a sum of money. To the first servant, he gives five talents. To the second, he gives two. And to the third, he gives one talent. In entrusting the servants to the money, he essentially was inviting them into a new identity. No longer were they simply servants in this moment. There was a change. They had been given responsibility. They had been entrusted with something. They now are managers of something. Their identity had changed because they had become something that they were not before. When he returned, he comes back into the, per, the, the, the two people that he gave the five and the two talents to. Both had put the money to work and doubled the initial lump sum from which they were given. 
The master looks at them and says, well done, good and faithful servants. And makes the promise that to those who have been faithful with little will be given much. They had leaned into their new identity as managers of the money and put the money to work and then returned the money to the master. Turning the person he gave the one talent, he asks for an accounting. And the man responds that out of fear, he dug a hole and buried what had been given to him. And with dirty hands, offers him back the once buried talent. And the master looks at the man and exclaims, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more and he will have in abundance. But from those who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The landowner comes down pretty hard on this servant. You see, in giving the man the talent, he was calling that man forward into a new identity. I entrust you with this gift. Be someone new. But the man's indifference leads him backwards, rendering him stationary. And with no intention to accept this identity, his slothful disposition leads him to bury what was given. I don't think the master is angry due to the lack of work or even due to a lack of return on investment. I think the master is angry due to the indifference towards this new identity from which he was presented. Jesus in Revelation 3, 15 and 16 says this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. With that, you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Indifference is the most detestable of attributes to Jesus. You see, Jesus desires our love and Jesus proved that he can handle others' hate. What he cannot accept, what he detests, is indifference. I remember in high school when the gospel was first presented to me at a Young Life camp. I remember the, uh, the speaker using this phrase over and over, the cross demands a response. You can't hear about Jesus on the cross and not do anything. It demands a response. And I remember thinking in that moment, doesn't there need to be something more than just a response? I mean, don't our words need to be verified by our actions? Yes, the cross demands a response. And yes, our response demands actions. You see, sloth is the vice that turns us away from the life that we were created to live. Sloth urges us toward the path of least resistance in all areas of life. Sloth tells us that the detachment from the old life is too difficult to realize. And so then we neglect to perform the actions necessary to maintain and deepen our relationship with Jesus. Today is not about laziness. Today is not even about busyness. Today is about us who have allowed our hearts to be hardened to the spiritual change 
of sacrifice and surrender that we need to make every day to him. Jesus exclaims in the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I believe this is our answer to the vice of sloth. You see, hunger and thirst come from a very primal desire to be filled and to be sustained. Hunger does not go away if you're too lazy to get to the kitchen and make yourself a sandwich. Thirst does not subside if you distract yourselves with all sorts of busyness. Both take action. It takes a concerted, focused, and intentional effort to eat food and to find drink. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are not those who neglect the life of transformation of following Christ. They are the ones seeking to grow and to be challenged. They are the ones who, instead of easing the restlessness in their spirits by filling their lives with comforts, press harder into a life of discipline. I mentioned this to Russ earlier this morning, and I'll say it again here. I didn't really want this to be a message about all of the new stuff, all of the more stuff that we need to do. But let me be honest and say that we do need to do more. And for some, doing more might be engaging in a spiritual discipline for the very first time in your life. It might be as simple as choosing a book over choosing TV. It might be finding a way to serve rather than finding ways to be served. For others, doing more might be finding ways to slow down in your day so you can actually see the people around you. It might mean saying no to something that your coworker asks you to do so that you can say yes to something that God asks you to do. It might mean being present the next time you find yourself in prayer, the next time you find yourself in a moment of worship. The scripture is clear that Christ has given us everything we need for a life and for relationship in him. However, for many of us, we're just waiting for that life to happen. We can't just wait for it to happen to us. We must pursue. We must press in. We must turn from our lives of indifference and live out our new identities in Jesus. Would you pray with me?